Parents, what would you do if your kid was like, you know what, mom and dad, I just, you've done too much already. I'm not going to trouble you anymore. I'm not going to ask anything more of you. What would you think? I got to take my kid to a therapist. Something's wrong with my kid if they're worried about me because that's what kids do. They ask and they ask incessantly. And I don't know about your house but the requests come at me so rapidly that I can't, even re- I can't even process the first request before we're on number 10. I mean, kids ask. They plead. Whenever they've been wronged, what do they do? Whenever their brother or sister wronged them, they come and they plead their case. And they give you no rest till you do something. This is the reality of being a parent. It doesn't matter the time of day. Kids are always asking for things. But parents are, uh, adults are a lot different, right? As adults, we don't ask. We don't like to ask. When we find that we need something, we think things kind of like this. Well, I don't want to put them out. And they might say no, and then if they said no, then I would feel awkward, and it might injure the relationship, or, you know, I should, I should really just handle this on my own. You know, I shouldn't be dependent upon other people, and, and they're probably not going to care anyway, and it's just... I don't want to ask. Can you relate to all of those things? You see, it's a fundamental difference that kids naturally ask. It's because they're dependent. But we adults, we avoid asking for things at all costs. And it begins to illustrate some of the reason that Jesus taught us about what it means to relate to God and what it means to be in His kingdom. As He said, He actually said this, In order to enter the kingdom of God, you must become like a little child. It's the only way. And the disciples were astonished. Really? You see, Jesus is teaching us something about the nature of the relationship between us and God. It's one of utter dependence. And what flows out of utter dependence is asking about all kinds of things, is pleading, is running to Him as the one who can affect our world. So we've been in this prayer series talking about prayer, and we've been looking at all kinds of different aspects of prayer. We looked at prayer as praise. That's kind of where we started off here. Prayer is praise. That prayer, a huge aspect of prayer, is just enjoying God, just praising Him. Last week we talked about prayer as dependence. This whole aspect of prayer is an act of coming to the Lord and surrendering it to Him. Finding refuge in Him, releasing control. It's it's the prayer that comes to Him and says, Thy will be done. I trust You. You've made promises to me. You're good. So literally, in the act of prayer, we're releasing control to God. We're becoming dependent upon Him. In fact, prayer is a fundamental act of dependence. We focused on that last week. But this week, I want to focus kind of on the, the balance of that. You see, the other aspect of that, there's a tension with that that dependence upon the Lord, we see in Scripture that we're also called to struggle in prayer, to battle in prayer, to be bold in prayer. And do you see how those two together really form a tension? Both dependent rest in prayer and both also pleading and assertiveness and struggle in prayer. They both go together. You cannot remove one from the other. Scripture talks a great deal about how our prayers are to be assertive and bold, how we're to struggle. 
Jesus himself said in, in John 14, Jesus taught a great deal about prayer. In John 14, Jesus said this, You may ask for anything in my name, and I will do it. That's a huge kind of promise, if you think about it. He actually said that to his disciples because he wanted them to take him up on it. Listen, if you come to me and you ask for anything in my name, I will do it. That's an enormous promise of prayer, one that I don't know that we would dare even to believe. Uh, uh, James chapter 5 says this, remarkably. James chapter 5 says, The prayers of a righteous man or a righteous woman are powerful and effective. They have power. They affect things. They change things. And then he goes on to talk about the illustration of Elijah, the Old Testament prophet. It says, He prayed earnestly that it would not rain for three years. And it didn't. And then he prayed at the end of that period of time for it to rain again, and it did. And in commenting on that passage in that reality, John Calvin, we had a mention of Calvin earlier. Calvin says, it is remarkable that in that instance we see somehow that heaven is put under the control of Elijah's prayer. Somehow, mysteriously, Elijah affected the action of heaven through prayer. A tremendous picture of the power of prayer. Jesus, in another parable, he told a parable about a persistent widow. And before he tells... This is in Luke chapter 18. And before he tells the parable, Luke tells us the reason why Jesus told this parable. He said he told them this parable in order that they might learn to always keep on praying and never give up. It's pretty amazing. Jesus was telling them this parable so that they would persist in prayer and not stop. And then here's the parable. It's a great one. It's the parable of a, of a widow who's received an injustice. And she goes to a judge, a judge who's wicked, who doesn't really care about people, we're told in the, in the parable. So he doesn't really care about her case. He's not really all that moved to, uh, to act on her behalf, but she has suffered injustice. And she keeps going to him for justice. Give me justice against my adversary. And she goes and goes and goes. And then the judge says to himself, I don't really care anything about this woman. But just so that she'll leave me alone, I'll give her justice. I'll make sure that it happens. Otherwise, she's going to bother me to death. What a parable. And then Jesus goes on to say, Now this was a wicked judge. What about your Father in heaven? Will He not surely give justice to His people that plead for Him for it? You see, Jesus there is saying, Pray assertively and never give up. Keep going. And the ultimate example is, of course, Jesus Himself. If you remember at the end of all the Gospels, right before Jesus goes to the cross, Jesus is in the Garden of Gethsemane. And the very next day, He will go to the cross. He knows what's about to happen. And He prays all night long. And He is literally on His face, pleading earnestly with the Lord. And we, hear, uh, we read in each of the Gospels that His prayer was so intense that his sweat was like drops of blood falling to the ground, pleading with the Lord. And what was he saying? Lord, let this cup pass from me. The cup uh, was an Old Testament image of wrath. It was the cup of wrath. So it's the picture of, of judgment being poured out. So he's talking about the cross. He knows what's about to happen. He says, if it is possible, let this cup pass. 
Is there any other way, Father? And of course, then he says in the very next sentence, but not as I will, but your will be done. You see that balance of intense pleading and assertiveness and, and, and boldness in saying, Lord, change this. But yet at the same time, the dependence of saying, you are good. I entrust myself to you. They must be held in tension together. So, Scripture gives us this complete picture of this call to earnest prayer. But have you ever thought in your life, what's the point of praying if God already knows what's going to happen? Has anybody ever thought this? Come on, let's all be honest. What is the point in prayer if God already knows what's going to happen and He's already decided what He's going to do and He's already in control? What is the purpose in prayer? And here's the purpose. The way He accomplishes what He's going to do is through our prayers. Our prayers become the means of God accomplishing all of His purposes. Now, through prayer, we get to participate with God in the renewal of the world, in the fixing of the world. Our prayers are a fundamental part of how He runs the world. That gives an enormous purpose to prayer. So it's not to say that that our prayers override what God's going to do, but rather they're a part of what God is going to do. They're how we join Him in what He does. So you see, as we talk about prayer, we've got to see both aspects of this, both dependence, but yet bold assertiveness. So if you, if you drop the assertiveness, then prayer just becomes a rote thing that you run through. You won't pray that much. Well, God already knows what He's going to do, and... So I just got to trust in that. Why would I bother through all the praying? See, you won't pray if you, don't, if you drop that aspect of the assertiveness and the power of prayer. But yet if you do the opposite and you drop the dependence of it and you say prayer is all power and is pleading on God to change His mind, then, then what you're going to have is anxiousness. It is you're going to be so worried about the outcome that there's no rest. You see, it's only as they come together that we find the kind of prayer that God desires of us. Assertiveness, boldness, the power of prayer. And that's exactly what we see in Psalm 7. As we come to Psalm 7 today, we see a tremendous picture of this bold, assertive prayer. As King David, this is a, a Psalm of David, and he finds himself deep in trouble. Again, he's being hunted by his enemies. He's in the midst of personal attack and personal battle. And oftentimes with David's adversaries, they were hidden. They would be nice and kind to his face, but rather behind his back, they were plotting. They were trying to bring him down. They were trying to assassinate him. Some of us can relate to that. To people who are kind to our face. For some of us, our adversaries are not kind to our face. But kind to our face, but rather behind our back are ripping us to shreds. Do you know what that experience is? It's exactly what David is facing here. He's being hunted. He is under attack. And the picture that we get in this psalm, which is a prayer, it is the picture of David coming into the heavenly courtroom. That's the picture here. David comes into the, the courtroom of the Lord. The Lord is pictured as the judge who is sitting upon the bench. Now, in the ancient world, the judge and the king were the same person. If you had a dispute in your kingdom, you would go before the king. You would present your request before the king, and the king would decide the case, 
he would make a judgment and then he would execute the judgment because he had ultimate power. And so in Scripture, God is defined and seen and pictured both as the king over all the earth and all, all creation, but yet also the judge over all the earth. And so David here in, the, in Psalm 7 is the picture of him storming into the courtroom. The doors bust open into the courtroom and David runs right up to the bench and he addresses the judge and he pleads, they're going to kill me. They're tearing me to pieces. Rise up. And David throughout the psalm begins to build a case. Now, one thing that I learned from my dad, who was always in court. See, my dad was a, he was a probation officer, and he spent most of his working life sitting in court, which he said is about as exciting as watching paint dry. And he and Rex worked together for like 20 years, so Rex can verify all of this. But my dad said the only entertainment you could find in court was to wait on that attorney or that plaintiff or that defendant that was going to come in and disrespect the judge. And he said they were just hoping, because he'd provide a little, little entertainment. Well, it's kind of foolish, right? People would literally come into the court, their life is on the line in some respect, and they would be disrespectful to the judge. They'd just be flippant. They would be overly bold. They wouldn't be respectful. They'd just come in in street clothes, or the, the lawyer would be disorganized, or they would just tell the judge to do something. You don't do those things. You don't demand things of the judge. You walk in hat in hand, right? You walk in humbly and you submit yourself. Because if you anger the judge, it's going to be a bad day for you. But here's what you've got to see that's so remarkable about Psalm 7. David didn't get that memo. He doesn't walk into the heavenly courtroom with hat in hand. He barges in and asks God to show up. He makes bold requests of the Lord, and he builds his case. Look with me. Just walk through Psalm 7 with me. As he starts off in verse 1 and 2, he comes right into the throne, and he lays out his, his case. He lays out the reality. You are my refuge. Save and deliver me from those who are pursuing me. And then this. Notice how he just full-on bears his heart before the Lord. If you don't do something, verse 2, they will tear me like a lion. They will rip me to pieces with no one to rescue me. You know, in court, you don't want to be overly emotional. You'll just irritate the judge. But in this courtroom, David comes in and bears the fullness of his heart. They're going to rip me to shreds if you don't do something. But then notice where he goes in verse 3, 3 through 5. He begins to plead and make a case for his own innocence. Look at what he says here. Oh, Lord, if I've done this, and there's guilt on my hands, if I've done evil to him who is at peace with me, or without cause have robbed my foe, then let my enemy pursue me and overtake me. Let him trample my life to the ground and make me sleep in the dust. He pleads his innocence. Now, David is not here saying that he is perfectly righteous or without sin. Because throughout the Psalms, David says just the opposite. Rather, he is referring to this particular matter. Lord, in this matter, I have not wronged them. I am in the right, but I entrust that judgment to you. It's as if David is coming and saying, listen, I believe I'm right, but only you know. I'm coming to you on the basis of my innocence in this matter, but you see it rightly. If I'm wrong, then judge me. 
If, I, if I've done wrong, if I'm in the wrong, then cast that judgment. But whatever you do, show up and judge. You see, he begins to build a case. He doesn't just come and say, do this for me because you ought to do this for me. But he rather, he knows God is a righteous judge who cares about what is right, and he goes and builds a case on that basis. But then in verse 6, it's a direct, a very direct and bold request. Verse 6, Arise, O Lord, in your anger. Rise up against the rage of my enemies. Awake, my God, decree justice. Let the assembled peoples gather around you. It's the picture of God convening His courtroom, of calling everyone into the assembly so that He might render a judgment. O righteous God who searches minds and hearts, bring an end to the violence of the wicked and make the righteous secure. You see, He begins to call boldly on the Lord to rise up and act. You see, in the ancient world, whenever a king or a judge would make a ruling, they wouldn't remain seated while everybody else stood. That's how our courtrooms work. You know, the, the, the judge remains seated, but everybody else stands. It was just the opposite in the ancient world. The, the king would rise, and it was a way of him stepping up and saying, I'm about to act. I'm about to rule. And so here, David is saying, God, rise up. Come down. Intervene in my situation. Do you see the audacity of David? The, the boldness, the assertiveness, the pleading. So where does this confidence come from for David? It comes from his confidence in who he knows God is. We see that in verses 9 through 14. He reminds God of who he is. I know who you are. I know what you're about, verse 9. O righteous God who searches minds and hearts, bring an end the violence of the wicked and make the righteous secure. My shield is God most high, who saves the upright in heart. God is a righteous judge, a God who expresses His wrath every day. If He does not relent, He will sharpen His sword. You see, David's confidence in coming is based upon the fact that he knows who God is. And he actually reminds God in the prayer. I know that you are righteous. And I know that you are a God who acts. Those are the fundamental realities that David knows about the living God. He cares about righteousness. He hates exploitation. He hates for the weak to be um, injured and taken advantage of by the powerful. He hates it because that's injustice. He hates it whenever someone is wrong. He hates sickness and death and all of these things. He hates them because He is a God of righteousness. He is a God of fairness. He is a God of things being right. He hates things that are crooked and backwards and oppression. All of those things are directly against who He is. And it is on the basis and confidence in that that David can pray so boldly. If David came and prayed for a Cadillac, he should have less confidence, right? Because he's praying according to something that he merely wants. But you see, in building his case, he sues, he sues God for his own promises. I know who you are. You are a God of justice. You are a God who intervenes in the world. These are true of you. So do it. What a picture of prayer. Here's the reason we don't pray like David. We believe 
a dual lie. And the lie is this, and it's closely related. One, God is distant. Two, God does not care. That's what we believe. Now, we would never say that. You know, if somebody were to give us a faith test, a Bible test, do you believe God is near or far away? Do you believe that God cares about your life? We would all say, oh, yes, absolutely, I know the right answers. But functionally, what do we believe? In the midst of everyday reality, what do you believe? When you get the bad news, when you're being hunted by an adversary, when things seem to be crumbling down in your life, when you look around at our world, what do you think in those times? Whenever you hear about the madness that just took place in Chattanooga, where some madman comes into a naval recruiting station and murders four unarmed Marines. What do you think whenever you see that? It's blatant evil. So often we think, where are you? Do you even care about this? You're distant to this, to this evil. Or even as we hear about something like Dory Moreland. Rachel prayed about this earlier. Dory Moreland is, if you remember a couple months ago, Tony Moreland coming and sharing with us about uh, care for the orphans and a ministry that they've created for foster care called Savannah's Canopy. This couple, a pillar in this community, they've taken over 10 orphans into their home. I mean, they, they, they're focusing on this ministry to orphans. And yet this past week, Dory Moreland is, has been in a coma in the hospital with viral meningitis. And, and, and it's still up in the air of what's going to happen. And so as we see the realities of our world, we very quickly begin to say, where are you? And we lose heart. And we say, does God even care? But you see, Scripture confronts those lies. Scripture comes to us and say, not only does He care, His anger is aroused at injustice. He hates disease like that. He hates the evil kind of injustice that was perpetrated in Chattanooga. It is the direct opposite of His purposes. And what does God want us to do? He wants us to storm the courtroom and build a case. That's what prayer is. To just bust through the doors and come right up to the bench and say, I know you hate this. So rise up, O Lord, with fullness of heart. Sometimes we're hesitant to pray in this way because what if it doesn't happen? Then I'm going to have to face all the doubts in my heart that maybe he's not there or maybe he doesn't exist. There's so many reasons why we are so passive in prayer. But this psalm shows us we've got to barge into the courtroom and call upon him to rise up and intervene in our lives. So let me close with this. Close with the gospel. How does the gospel impact our boldness in prayer? Let me just ask this question, which I think is a key question. So we see Psalm 7 inviting us to a boldness and showing us an access to the throne room, the courtroom of God. And the question is, what is the basis of our access? What is the basis, what is our standing by which we can actually come into the heavenly courtroom like this? What is our standing? What is our status? And let me just state, first of all, what it is not. It is not our own righteousness. It cannot be. The basis of our access to the throne room is not our goodness or our holiness. 
It's not how good you've been doing lately, how infrequent your sins are, how much victory you're experiencing in certain areas of your life. It's not your sincerity. It's not your past experience of God. None of those things are the basis of this kind of access to the throne room. Because the reality is, none of us is innocent. None of us comes into the courtroom with innocent hands. Did you hear what David pleaded here? Of course, he was speaking to that particular situation. But the reality is, is that none of us can come into the courtroom and say the things that he said, because here's what's true. We have done this. The guilt is on our hands. We have done evil to those who are at peace with us. And without cause, we have robbed our foe. I've done this. I've spoken against people in my life behind their back. I've used other people for my own benefit. You know, the definition of wickedness is disadvantaging the community for your own advantage. By the other token of that righteousness is disadvantaging yourself for the advantage of the community. How often do we disadvantage others for our own benefit? The answer for me is daily. I've looked down upon other people because of what I have and what they don't. I've, looked, I've been prejudiced towards people. These are things that we are guilty of, things that we have done. We have neglected the cry of the poor. So we cannot come before the throne room and stand. It's impossible. Not one of us. We all alike have fallen short of the glory of God. And one day, make no mistake, everyone will stand in the courtroom and they will give an account before the judge who sees everything. So if our access and basis is not upon our own righteousness, what is it upon? That's the question. And the answer is this. The righteousness of another. Our only access is based upon the righteousness of another. Namely, Jesus Christ. He is the only righteous one. He is the only one who has perfectly loved his neighbor, who's disadvantaged himself, for the advantage of the community, perfectly. He's the only one who has kept the entirety of God's law and all of His commandments perfectly. He is the only one who is perfectly dependent upon the Father. He is the only righteous one. And here's what happened. And this is where our access comes from. His prayer was ignored. We mentioned earlier that in the Garden of Gethsemane, right before He went to the cross, He pleaded with the Lord, let this cup pass. You know what the Father's answer was? No. His prayer was rejected so that ours could be received. The next day on the cross, as He's hanging on the cross at the very end of His suffering, His last prayer was a quote. He's literally praying a psalm, Psalm 22. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And there was silence from heaven. He was shut out. What was happening there? Judgment was falling upon Him in our place. Our judgment. The judgment that we deserve was falling upon Jesus on the cross. Here's how David describes it. If He does not relent, and He did not with Jesus, He sharpened His sword. He bent, he, he bent and strung His bow. He prepared His deadly weapons. He made ready His flaming arrows and it all fell on Jesus on the cross. And here's why. So that all those who are united to Him by faith 
might have his access to the Father. You see, if you are united to Jesus through faith, all that's true of us, all the guilt that is upon our hands was laid upon him on the cross. And all of his righteousness, his perfection, his access to the Father is credited to us. The only way for us to come like this before the Father is standing on the merits of Jesus alone. And if you are in union with Christ, you have all the full access to the Father. As the writer of Hebrews says, let us approach with confidence before this throne based upon the work of Jesus. If we are united to Jesus, we become sons and daughters of the King, and that's access. It's been said one time that the only person who dares to wake a king at 3 a.m. in the morning is his own child. Now think about that for a minute. To wake a king at 3 a.m. is not a good idea. Because what if he's in a bad mood? What if he's angry? You don't just storm in and wake him up. You can imagine his court deciding who's going to actually go in and wake him up if, if a matter has arisen in the kingdom. We've got to go wake up the king, but I'm not going, you go. No, I'm not going, you go. Who wants to go in and wake the king? But what if his child goes in there? His child can run in and jump right in the bed. His child can scream until he comes in there and gives him a glass of water. That's my reality. Almost every night, I'm awakened at about 3 a.m., and I come in there, eyes half open, and here's the request I hear. Would you cover me up? Would you give me a glass of water? And what happens? Wrath? Well, honestly, sometimes wrath, but... Only my children can do that. Maybe Ashley, too. I'd be a little concerned, but... You see the access of a child? You see, if you're in union with Christ, if you are one with Him, you have the access of the perfect Son. It's the only way to barge into the courtroom is being in union with Christ. And if you're in union with Christ, you are His child. You're His son and His daughter. And so you can go into the courtroom, you can cry in the lap of the judge, you can demand justice, you can build your case, you have full access. That's what the gospel shows us. The gospel emboldens prayer more than ever before. Let me stop there and just give us a few moments to respond to that. We like to take a few moments at the end of the service to say, hey, this is how that affects me as I see the passage, as I consider um, prayer, as I consider the gospel. This is how that affects me and moves me. This is what it makes me feel. So let's take just a second to hear from one another.